Hello, I'm excited you found your way here. I'm your host, Ashley Rennick, and you're listening to Waldorfy. In each episode, I explore and explain Waldorf education and its anthroposophical roots. Hello, everybody, and thank you all for listening in. This episode is super exciting. For the very first time ever on the show, I'm speaking with two guests in this episode. Returning guests, actually, Megan Rose Wilson of Whole Family Rhythms and educational researcher Ashley May. In this episode, our discussion is focused on bringing stories and songs to young children. So you know, the show notes page for this episode can be found at waldorfie.com forward slash stories and songs. As always, I have to give a big shout out to our generous Patreon supporters. Thank you all so much for supporting me to bring this content to all of you. What's Patreon, you may be wondering? Patreon is a platform where you can support creators like myself to create content that you love with a small monthly contribution. There's also bonus content over in that space that you can't access anywhere else. If you'd like to learn more about becoming a supporter, just visit patreon.com forward slash Waldorfy and Patreon is P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Now, let me introduce you to my incredible guests, Ashley and Megan. Ashley J. May is a community-engaged researcher, writer, and recent Reimagining Migration Fellow. As the founder and project director of her Freedom Dream, the Grassroots Morning Garden Project, Ashley shares her research and reflections on radical love, community, liberation, and belonging via 30 Sunsets and a Moon, a three-volume zine project co-created with friend and collaborator Jessica Lewis-Stevens of Sugarhouse Workshop. The series is archived in the UMass Amherst Black Feminist Archive in the Bernard Special Collection Zine Library. Ashley's work in the study of childhood spans over 20 years. She's an active member of the American Anthropological Association, the Society for History of Children and Youth, the Society for Research and Child Development, and the Waldorf Early Childhood Association of North America. Ashley's work blends the beauty of Waldorf philosophy, feminist pedagogy, and culturally sustaining place-based liberation practices while integrating sites of expansion and opportunity for transformation in order that we be in right relationship with the families and communities that we serve. You can find out more about 30 Sunsets in a Moon by visiting the project archive at sugarhouseworkshop.com forward slash 30 Sunsets and by visiting Ashley's Instagram page, which is at May Ashley J. And I'll link to both of those on the show notes page for this episode. Ashley also shared a bunch of additional resources for this episode that will be linked there as well. As a reminder, the show notes page for this episode is waldorfie.com forward slash stories and songs. Megan Rose Wilson is a parent educator and author of the now retired seasonal series of Whole Family Rhythms. After finishing a BA, she went on to complete her foundations in Steiner education and anthroposophy at Sydney Steiner College, as well as her Waldorf Early Childhood Certification at the Rudolf Steiner Center in Toronto. She has received her certification as a Simplicity Parenting Family Life Coach and has supported hundreds of parents to create a strong family rhythm unique to their own values and culture. She has four young children currently attending their local Waldorf school. Megan provides printable resources, courses, and coaching to parents who are looking for a bridge to cross between their unique family life and their children's often, but not always, Waldorf schools. Now, I realized while I was editing this one that you may not know who is Ashley and who is Megan as you all start listening in. So you'll become more familiar with each guest as you listen. Know that it's Ashley May who speaks first after myself with Megan Wilson coming in after. Hello, Ashley and Megan. Thank you so much for creating the space for this episode to happen. When I kind of dreamed up this episode, I immediately both of your names came to mind and both of you have spoken with me on the podcast before. And immediately, as soon as I thought of both of you, I thought, wow, could we 
the three of us get together for this episode. No, no, that's crazy. Three busy moms get together for an episode together. It's too nuts. It, we, we couldn't make it happen. But you know what? Like as soon as I sent out the email, it kind of came together. And here, I think this is our third effort actually to record this episode together. Mm-hmm. And here we are. So thank you both so much for creating the space and time and yeah, I said before we get started that this episode may go into just the three of us chatting because I'm so excited to have the two of you in the same space. So we'll see where we <laughs> where we go with it. So we are speaking about stories for young children today. So we'll start with that. And my first question, and I guess I, I would love to hear both of your perspectives on this. Uh, both of you are in the bubble of early childhood education and the Waldorf bubble as well, the early childhood bubble. And The question I have is what constitutes a good story for young children? And I kind of want to hear just both of your takes on that. You know, for me, what's most important that uh, for a child in a a story, especially young children, is it's that it's a tale that encourages them to like dream and to like uh, imagine other worlds, to bring folks together. I feel like those are the foundations for problem solving and, and going out in the world and and being brave is being told via story of the promise, right? <laughs> of the promise in the world, the promise of, of a new day, the promise of the imagination and for the world to come together to sort of embrace them. Uh, uh, I use a, I, I think, I think stories that, have special people in them. And I know we'll get into that later, but like, you know, I use a lot of the grandmother archetype. There's also grandpas there, but for me, uh, as a story collector, a story listener and a storyteller, it's so important that I also have a little bit of me in there. And a big part of my life, as you both know, is uh, that I was raised in a multi-generational home and uh, being told stories by the women in my family is a big part of who I am today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you first asked that question, Ashley, the first answer that comes to me is a good story is anything that's told by their parent, the child's parents or or grandparents or whomever, like children love listening, especially young children love listening to stories um, from their parents own childhood, or, you know, just any story that's told by a parent seems so much more magical than reading a book or hearing a fairy tale. There's something so much more personal and real and exciting about it. And stories about nature and the natural world really resonate with young children as well. Silly stories are so amazing for this kind of young age group. Like I think of Robert Munch and all his stories and silly rhymes and, you know, something relatable that's that's humorous and joyful because sometimes adults can be so serious with their their storytelling. Yeah, those are some other things that come to mind. Silly. Little children love silly, don't they? And I also um, feel simple is something that we kind of forget as adults too, right? I find Mm -hmm. I'm always trying to make complex like story arcs for my three-year-old and my husband is just he just like sits down and tells a story about like here's the pig and the pig is gonna make a garden and it's so simple and he totally loves it so it's it's not that intimidating when you think of it that way too I think for parents if you or carers is that it it really could be the simplest simplest thing that can make a good story also uh for 
for young children. Yeah, I think really young, like really, really young children. Um, when I did my Waldorf training, they just like the, the simplest narrative, like just a description of what somebody's doing in that day. Um, whereas like the older kindergarten children, they're the ones that like the the more common flow of like that story where there's, you know, the introduction, and then you have that big conflict and those the the main characters and the heroine and the Oh, gosh, I've lost the word. Um, what's the, uh, the antagonist or protagonist? protagonist the protagonist? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and then ending, like they love that up and down that that flow, but really, really young children just really need a simple, tiny little story about someone's day or an animal's day. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I have found with stories, and I'm sure you both can attest to that stories can be such uh, a way for young children, especially really little children to process things. So I know for my son, um, every time we've gotten on an airplane, which now hasn't been for a while, for the whole kind of week, like leading up, I've told him different kind of stories relating to an airplane and things that he'll interact with um, in his world that will be very different from kind of his his daily life. And have you both done that with your children as well? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, for example, you know, a lot of I've done a lot of healing stories, not only in my work with like uh, with immigrant and refugee children and families, but like even with my own children. So, for example, like if you you both have 30 sunsets and moon, if you look at the summer story, I that story has always been sort of lingering in my heart, but it really spun. I mean, it's actually a retelling of a of another story that is uh, a book we have that is sort of part of our our Islamic uh, bookshelf, so to speak. But I had to give it more meaning for my children last year, as my oldest was starting to to ask questions about his uh, about my great grandmother who is no longer with us. He was processing the death of George Floyd. Uh, he needed to feel safe. He needed to know about the journeys folks go on when they leave this earth, when they feel unsafe. And so uh, a lot of the storytelling uh, within that, that summer tale, me sort of soothing his heart is built into there as well as uh, teaching, you know, values because uh, in our faith, uh, um, storytelling is a big part of guiding children along their way in the values and uh, teaching them ways of being in the, and the tarbiya, which is uh, sort of that, that guiding of the underlying values of our faith. So um, building all those things together is always sort of part of, of, of my work. So yeah, I would give that as a big example, even, you know, for someone that has like, has already, or is working their storytelling muscle, just taking small problems throughout the day and, and just practicing turning your guidance into a story is, mm-hmm. is something that I think is just, you, something any parent or caregiver could implement immediately. So it, it's a big part of my practice. And <laughs> my husband does it for no other reason. And that's the way he was raised. He's not trying to be a storyteller, but he was raised very similar to myself, where if so, if you're doing something and you're a little bit off track, <laughs> like your elders are going to tell you a story to, to kind of guide you back on the straight path, as we say. So, um, mm. and I think that's a very easy way for, for folks that are that have young children in their care to, to work that muscle and um, be really, really have children in their embrace as they encounter stress or sadness or anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My daughter, uh, one of my daughters, 
experiences anxiety more than the others about very simple things, but they're not uh, simple or small to her. And so my husband started telling uh, a mouse story. They call it the mouse story. And there are lots of different characters in there, but there's one uh, little character named Kelly and she is similar to my daughter. And with those stories, he kind of uh, paints this picture of her facing challenges and then overcoming them or, you know, even feeling feeling all that fear or worry and, um, you know, acknowledging it, but then somehow overcoming it or um, experiencing it and then moving on or whatever it is. And it has been um, soothing for her. Uh, I think to to know that she's not alone. And for my son, his <laughs> favorite is we have this uh, story called Woods Boy Stories, and I don't even know where this came out of. I was just tired, I think, one day and like looking at the woods. Like, there's a little boy who lives in the woods, and we would just talk about mm-hmm. things he does during the day, and it's completely evolved to things that now he does in his day. And sometimes we talk about the way he wanted the things to go, you know, and he's just three. So he doesn't have, he's still in that phase of where the simplicity is, is where he's, I guess, most connected and understanding. But I loved Ashley, how you said, uh, if parents or carers or grandparents that want to flex their storytelling muscle going with that, I hear the term archetype thrown around a lot when we talk about stories and Waldorf and early childhood education. So do you each want to talk about what does what does that mean? Maybe we can start uh, with you here, Megan. What does the archetype mean for stories, and and how can we work with that as we create stories for our children? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the the archetype is like it's supposed to be a symbol of the human experience. And I really thought about this uh, before our call because I was wondering, is it is it actually a symbol? I think sometimes it becomes a symbol for a cultural experience and that's where sometimes the confusion comes in. But I think the actual meaning is supposed to be a symbol for the like entire human experience. Okay. And what is your experience with that, Ashley? How do you see the archetype for children's stories and how do you okay. use it or how is it important to you? Yeah. You know, I'm in agreement with what, what, with what Megan is saying. You know, that's my understanding of it. And I was even reading the other day about, you know, thinking about the mother archetype and the, and the, the father. And just like she said, like, does it, does, is there room for expansion, right? And thinking about it, like, is there something typical that a father should do in stories? And can't, do we have room to change that? Do we have room to change what mom does, what grandma does? That's what I'm always thinking about. But typically my understanding is that it's, it's, a, it's something that is constant and consistent and it is uh, playing a role in, in guiding the story and therefore guiding the child's heart in that way. Yeah, of course. Did you want to add something, Megan? Yeah. Um, the, it, it, I, I have an actual definition here and it says an archetype is a universally understood symbol or term or pattern of be- behavior that models, um, or sorry, that plays a role in influencing human behavior. So yeah, that's kind of what Ashley just alluded to is that uh, it plays a role in influencing human behavior 
Yeah, I don't know. I think when I think of Waldorf archetypes, like Ashley said, I think of the mother and the father. I also think of the seasons, like the winter archetype or the autumn archetype, uh, like King Winter, for example, which I think in, in that way, I kind of question, is that actually um, like a global archetype, King Winter, or is it more of a cultural um, archetype that belongs like within a certain part of the world? Uh yeah, that those that that's the that's my thinking right now with archetypes and and how they can be expanded on in Waldorf kindergartens and early childhood and in stories. I think there are some that are totally universal, like the mother, but there is still room for expansion even with that one. And then other archetypes, I think, really are only for specific places and times and cultures. Yes. And this is a place where I'd love for this conversation to go at this moment. My, uh, where I see in my initial response to archetype is really like good and bad, uh, more of the moral um, archetypes, I guess, which are, can be completely independent of anything else, I guess. When I think of, uh, of storytelling, especially I think for more, for older children, like kindergarten and first grade and second mm-hmm. grade, maybe. But pertaining to what you just said, I find my husband works uh, in Florida in the wintertime and we're there. And I find such when, – when you talk about the seasons, I mean, that's what I grew up with, stories about the seasons and these seasonal archetypes. Like they are their own – the seasons are their own kind of characters in a way. Um, and characters mm-hmm. come through because of what the season brings through. And I feel from my own – um, upbringing, just completely lost in this new, in this climate, trying to navigate the natural world, which is w- pretty much all of the inspiration for most of the stories that I just come up with for my son. So um, I'd love to hear, especially you, Ashley, because you live all the time in a warmer climate and you know your ancestral background is different than Megan and myself. So how did the seasons come in uh, for you uh, in through, through storytelling and in relation, especially to the archetypes? Yeah. Well, for our, most of our festivals, I mean, like they move, you know, they move around. Like I remember when I was first reviewing a lot of the books, uh, the typical books that you might find in the home of a family that is choosing to embrace the lifestyle of, of having like a Waldorf home or a Waldorf early childhood I saw this one book where it just literally said under spring that it was uh, two of our biggest festivals. And I was like, well, what, you know, what, what a commitment to say that in this book that you're publishing in this moment in time about a festival that run on a lunar calendar and move throughout the seasons, you know, uh, what is this that, what are you saying about your ability to be flexible on, on these seasonal archetypes, right? Like on what it should look like for, for the aids. It's not always spring this year. It's, it was summer and spring one year. It will be fall and winter. Right. So, so when I am blending together our festival seasons and the seasons that we are uh, the seasons of the world, right. The, you may have a Ramadan that looks like fall. And, and so that's like a norm for us. (laughs) And, and I think that that, is what that foundation already having that foundation is what allows me to look at things with open eyes and be, be open to seeing different ways of looking at the world and of celebrating of telling stories. 
Now, if you want to talk about typical festivals, let's say, let's say for like, uh, for Christmas. Uh, so like my mom, you know, she celebrates Christmas, like in the very, you know, secular sense, just presents and a Christmas tree and some Christmas lights and very consumerist. And I'm at our house. Sorry, mom, if you hear me, you know, in, in the very much in the secular sense of the world of the word. And I'm always trying to talk to her about really weaving in more resonance there, similar to what we do in Ramadan. And, and, and for that, it doesn't mean there's snow, right? (laughs) There's not snow in Los Angeles. (laughs) It, It doesn't happen. It doesn't look cold. It doesn't look like all of when you when you look at these these pictures in these books often of winter or king winter king winter looks like king winter would be burning up hot if he was in Los Angeles in December he would be sweating bullets right so that's not real for us what's real for us reminds me of some of these pictures i was actually going through as i'm thinking about volume 2 for um 30 sunsets that took place in fall and fall and um winter it was still warm the sun was like still piercing, but the sun just seemed different and the shade seemed different. We were not cold. We were not freezing. There's no, there's no snow. There's not a lot of rain, but the trees look different. The earth looks different. The flowers are different. Everything just changes in its own unique way here. And I, and I think if you attach yourself to what these books tell you your winter has to look like or what your Christmas or fill in the blank holiday season or our festival has to look like, then, then you're going to be stuck as you really make these seasons your own. So like my recommendation for you, Ashley, is just like when you think about how we, when children are younger, you don't want to use books. You want to tell stories so that they have the imagination to create their own landscape in their hearts and in their heads. You need to be writing the story of what winter in Florida looks like for you, right? For what, what is Christmas? What, what does it look like for you? Whatever holidays or festivals that you hold dear to your heart, you have to be the keeper of your own traditions and the writer of your own stories. And, and, and that's the only recommendation I can give because if you, if, if, and it sort of, it, it reaches back to like all of the existing uh, critiques of, of Waldorf education, Waldorf homeschooling is that it, it, it looks a certain way and it has to look a certain way, but, but it doesn't. And folks need to understand that you have the freedom to, to, you can love Waldorf and at the same time say, this is not going to work for our family because this is what's important for us, right? So you have to give yourself that, that freedom, in my opinion. And then er- everything else falls into place. Ashley, I live for this wisdom from you. It's so beautiful. It inspires me so much. And I just love what you said about just kind of setting the book down and making it be a living, breathing thing, because that's what young children are. They're so living right there in the moment with you and what they're seeing and experiencing. Um, And I know myself, I'm the kind of like study, read the book, like get Pinterest inspiration and then go from there. And that's just not um, really at its essence, this Waldorf approach can be this beautiful living, breathing thing, but you do have to kind of separate yourself sometimes from what you read exactly how you think it should be or what you see in a picture you think it should be. And I'm glad that you brought that to light. I'm wondering, Megan, if you 
also, you actually have experience having lived in the Southern Hemisphere, uh, seasons of your, you know, holidays that you traditionally celebrated being different, and also just your own exploration of geography and its relationship to stories and archetypes. Yeah, I was going to say when we lived in Australia, so I'm from Canada uh, originally, and that's where I am now, but uh, my husband's Australian and we lived there for 10 years and all of my children were born there. And I was so disoriented for so many years there because at Christmas time in December uh, in Australia, for example, it's summer or um, at Easter time, which those are kind of the two big festivals that um, my family celebrates. it's it's autumn in Australia, where typically it's spring, and you do have these kind of quote unquote archetypal uh, symbols for Easter, where there's the the new birth and the rebirth, and you have the the rabbits with lots of babies or eggs, which represent um, like the cycle of life. And so I was trying to fit it all together in my head with this like um, opposite season thing. And it was, it was really a lot for me, but there were some interesting takes because the uh, Waldorf schools there at the time, they were still kind of going with all the same symbols, but putting a little bit of a different spin. So I know, uh, for example, we had this bunny story and they were all finding their eggs, but it was set in autumn and, you know, they were jumping on the crunching leaves and so on and so forth. And so they kind of made it work, but it still just didn't feel really authentic to me um, or resonate with me. Now I think that they've started changing a lot of that and they've uh, especially looked at uh, what the indigenous Aboriginal people there, what what their seasons are, because they're they're not the Eurocentric kind of typical four seasons. And and what are the subtle changes that are happening in nature at certain times of the year? And how do we bring that into story? And how do we bring that into what we're celebrating and how we're coming into community with one another? And so. Yeah, I started to explore that a little bit more um, as I got to know the landscape. Uh, I know around uh, just before Christmas time, these beautiful trees, I think you might have them in LA, actually, the jacaranda trees with the beautiful purple blooms, they would bloom in November, December. And so I started bringing those into some of our, our Christmas decorations or festivities or whatever it was. So yeah, you, my advice is the same as Ashley's. It's like really put down that book, ground yourself in where you are, the people that have been there on that land before and, you know, what your ancestors celebrated or what they did and, you know, really sit with how you can make whatever celebration or tradition more authentic to you and that land in the moment and your family. Have you been looking for something specially crafted to entertain and enrich your child's developing mind? Wouldn't it be amazing if this content promoted values like kindness, empathy, and respect to help build a gentler world? Would you love a break but feel a little guilty about turning the TV on? Then you're going to be pretty excited to learn about Sparkle Stories. With Sparkle Stories, your family can enjoy a world of 1,300 plus original audio stories for ages three and up. Sparkle Stories is dedicated to helping the world go a little slower and be a little kinder. Their audio-only approach invites children to adventure, wonder, and dream in a safe and secure way. Audio stories are a low-pressure way to make even the shyest of readers hungry for more adventure and learning. 
My older son is three and a half, and I love that I can search for stories based on his age or story topic. For him, I love that the stories are recorded slowly for young ears, ensuring maximum comprehension and enjoyment. It's been such a nice way to build a quiet rest time into our active days. I've also gifted Sparkle Stories to my six-year-old niece twice now, and I know she enjoys the longer tales and ongoing series. My favorite thing about Sparkle Stories, it is such a great alternative to the TV. Their audio-only stories spur children to use their imaginations and grow their curiosity compared to image-based entertainment like TV. Especially having our new little one in the house, I love using Sparkle Stories to keep my three-year-old's mind engaged and having fun while I get things done. I've teamed up with Sparkle Stories to offer an extended 30-day free trial so you can enjoy the entire library of Sparkle Stories, over 1,300 original audio stories for ages 3 and up, and you can trust me, you will enjoy. To sign up, just visit sparklestories.com forward slash sign up and use code WALDORFEE, and know that this coupon code is just good through the end of 2021, so don't delay. I just love Sparkle Stories' selection of gentle stories for growing minds. I think most of you know by now how much I truly love all things Waldorf. What can I say? It's what I was fortunate enough to get to experience as a child, and now I'm so enjoying learning more about all of it with you listeners as an adult. You know the Waldorf goodies are beautiful, but where do you find that quality selection of Waldorf toys, books, and art supplies? Well, you needn't look any further than Palumba. Palumba, loosely meaning wooden dove, was formed in 2007 to fill the need for the desire to have safe, high-quality, all-natural toys made in the U.S. Palumba's selection of products are carefully chosen to ensure that they're made of wood, wool, silk, and cotton, along with other natural materials. Palumba is also the only retailer that features the complete Camden Rose line. Camden Rose's commitment to durability, beauty, natural, and renewable materials make them the American leader in eco-friendly natural toy and children's furniture design. A handful of items come from a women's cooperative in Peru, while the majority of items are made in the U.S., At Palumba, they believe that imaginative, open-ended play with simple toys crafted from beautiful, natural materials offers children warmth and a sense of well-being when discovering their world. If you've listened to this show before or follow on social media, you know that Palumba is my favorite place to get all the quality Waldorf things. I would so love for you to check them out. You can shop their selection of Waldorf toys, books, and art supplies at their website, palumba.com. That's P-A-L-U-M-B-A.com. And we've already talked about it once or twice in this conversation, but I'm sure it'll keep continuing to pop up as we move forward here. And I do want to move forward, but what was popping up, and I've heard a couple of times, is expanding on this traditional picture of Waldorf stories. And I know both of you have explored that. And uh, you know, I'm sure we'll get more into it more as we continue chatting, as I mentioned. So the next question I have is about the appropriateness of stories and songs for young children. So what what makes a story appropriate for uh, a young child? And I think you brought up earlier, Ashley, that stories, and I said as well, that stories can be a way for children to process the things that they see and experience. And I maybe I can ask you first, Ashley, how you see uh, an appropriate way to translate something perhaps challenging in the world of a young child or complex or even scary for a, you know, two, three, four-year-old or a kindergartner. Oh, as far as like stories, not songs. Sorry, do you want me to? Or stories or songs. Yeah, you could elaborate to both, of course. Uh, 
I mean, what I like to do, what I've liked to do lately, like most recently, is it, it sort of like modeling through story for children to, as as Megan was saying, like to ground themselves and to listen to nature and to to witness everything that's going on around them, the challenges that that nature faces, that that animals face, that birds face, uh, giving you know creating those new worlds. And you know, as I spoke of like possibility, right? Like things can, it doesn't always have to be like humans engaging with each other, but, but, but you, we know that children do enjoy to, to imagine a world where imagine entering into the world of like animals or fairies, right. Or the, or the unseen, right. And, and seeing that they too normalizing these experiences, like the mouse tail with Megan's child. Right. <laughs> so giving her, a peek into the world of mice and uh, normalizing her experience and knowing she's not alone. So instead of telling her, it's fine, you'll be fine, this is okay what you're doing, I'm reshaping this reality into uh, you witnessing someone else's experience, in this case, like animals. And, uh, and And I think that is something that really touches children's hearts, right? Because... They're so in touch. They're so in touch naturally with with the natural world. So I think I think the the more that we can encourage them to to witness the natural world around them, and to see that everyone, every every being, all of creation encounters their challenges and their rhythms and their flows. That's the best way that I've been able to to uh, shape that kind of story for my children and for the the families that that I've worked with. As far as songs go, I, you know, uh, it's, it's the same thing uh, for me. I, I just remember, like, I can always remember one of my favorite little, it's a very short song because, and I could ask my grandmother if it's even longer, but when she would pick me up from school, she would say, hop in chicken cause I got your corn. And I would hop in the car. So it's like, she's like, I have this picture of a a chicken hopping to get their food, their sustenance, and I go into the car and she would give me a snack, right? And so it's, I, she, throughout my childhood, she sang through transition. She sang to welcome me into the door. Uh, I learned how to cook things from particular songs, right? Like I, I knew how to make, uh, when we, one of my mom's best friends uh, was our babysitter when we were young. And there was a song for making hot chocolate and we would, we would sing that song. And then we knew how to make, make hot chocolate and we were learning it in Spanish. But because of the way that the song was motioned for us, uh, we picked up the rhythm of that task of the day. What seems mundane and normal is brought to life through song. And that's what I just really love about, about songs with children. And I think songs are story. They, they work in a similar way, way uh, for our children. Uh, and they're basically my favorite thing to do, honestly, is song and circle. Uh, I could be there all day because really they can get their body involved, their voices involved. There's no, there's no rules around. Like we, we talk a lot about in some of the work that I do about the rules uh, of, you know, that are, really honestly rooted in um, Eurocentric values on how you, how one should perform with their body when hearing a story or singing a song. Like, you know, you have the expectation, right. To sit down, but children shouldn't be expected to sit down when, when they're dancing. Like I can remember still a vivid memory in my head 
when I was with uh, the mothers and children in the uh, the Islamic circle time for the Muslim moms and uh, children. Uh, actually, this was at our place of worship, our masjid, and they were jumping around and beating a drum and moving and had play silks, but singing in remembrance and weaving our traditions in. But you imagine like the when many children of color enter, enter into classrooms, like typical classrooms, they have these expectations on their body to just sit down. But often where they're coming from, their homes and their traditions are an exact opposition of this model of how a child behaves when they are touched by a song or a story. So part of my practice too, and the reason why story and song is so important to everything that I do is uh, allowing these children to see themselves uh, in the practice of, of singing songs and, and telling stories and sitting down and being quiet and being crisscross applesauce and <laughs> all ducks in order is not a part of that. Yeah. And I want to expand into song in a moment, Ashley, so we can talk a little bit more about that. I'm wondering, Megan, if you wanted to chime in on this appropriateness, I guess, of stories for young children and how you feel that kind of fits in with Waldorf and if you feel it could be expanded upon since we've been talking about expanding upon (laughs) that theme of Waldorf stories and songs. Yeah. I mean, I guess from a, I, I I always talk from, I, I, for me, I really think that sometimes Waldorf has been misinterpreted. So I want to say like, you know, from a really traditional point of view, the, quote unquote, best stories for kindergarten children are the fairy tales, right? But the the Grimm's fairy tales specifically is what's traditionally, has been traditionally told in Waldorf kindergartens. But I don't actually think that that's what the pedagogy was meant to be in the first place. Um, I think it was just an indication based on where the first school started. And uh people just kept using that because that's what was used in the first school. And they didn't stop to think about what the deeper reason was behind why um, those stories were chosen for kindergarten. Um, So uh, I think from, from that perspective, the fairy, the, the classic like Grimm's fairy tales that are told in Waldorf kindergartens, it's, it's not the Grimm's fairy tales that are, the quote appropriate stories. I think it's it's folk tales in general, um, and so the question kind of becomes um, whose folk tales and uh, where do they come from, and how do teachers find them and use them appropriately, and um, which classrooms are we using them in? Because every class constellation is different around the world and requires. Uh, different folk stories based on where the teacher's coming from and what children are in the classrooms and what their um, communities outside of those classrooms look like. And that's kind of where I begin asking that that question. I agree. I agree with that because I'm just, you you know, of course there's like this foundational, the, like, as you say, Megan, like these first steps that were taken and then that, that is like, that is like, you know, stamped into the books as this is what is supposed to be done. But I can't imagine that that was the the way of thinking around um, how the stories could guide children, you know, once they enter into that level. And uh, I was reading something the other day, I actually it was today, and it was, uh, it was around like, what, 
the underlying value and goal is of the for- of the fairy tale and how the types of situations that are sometimes viewed as too much for children what purpose that they're really serving for kids to differ through the the fairy tale and then i was thinking about virginia hamilton's uh work on the um african-american uh folk tales on the people could fly and even in her story like there there's a cinderella tale cat scanella is in there and it's kind of like kind of like a wild story but it's still the same it's still the same situation as Grimm's, and you could just take that and if you were serving children that you felt like this would be embracing or this would be an important uh, important story for them to, to hear because they haven't been exposed to it, it would be doing this exact same thing that Grimm's does, right? And yeah. so, yeah, you just have to think outside the box. And the problem is, like you're saying, Megan, it's like folks are misinterpreting or they're just like going by the book on what they read and they're not going beyond, right? To like, sometimes I feel like we have to tell uh, families and and parents out there, like you have try to go to the the primary source, right? Go go back to the roots, because sometimes that's where you find like the the meat and the juice of all the work, and it can really it can really lay the foundation for the reimagining of what Waldorf uh, would look like in your home or in your um your uh, early childhood classroom. Yes, I feel like we talked about this quite a bit actually in the last season about each grade where what is traditionally offered or traditionally presented was based off of what I understand as Steiner's indications. It's not like he said, this is exactly what you're supposed to do. And here's exactly how you're supposed to do it. Um, The premise, you know, of Waldorf education was founded on his uh, indications of what to meet these children where they're developmentally at. It, It wasn't an end to add on to that to prepare these children in front of the teacher for the world that they're going to go out into. And I come back to that quite a bit um, in these conversations on the show because obviously the world that children are going to go out into now is very different than it was uh, in 1919 when the first Waldorf School was founded. So yeah, I think that there's a lot of room for expansion and there's a lot of people interested in doing that work. So I'm glad, I'm hoping that this conversation in- inspires some some more of that. So I want to talk more about songs because uh, there's just even listening to what you have shared so far, Ashley, I'm completely inspired already. My, I have a lot of memories of being a little kid and also taking my son to parent-child class, which already his first parent-child class seems like a long time ago and he's just three. Um, and a lot of songs in the Waldorf sphere being in the fifth. And I'm wondering if you want to start add anything to this, Megan? Why are those songs in the fifth? And uh, how how have you kind of utilized that? <laughs> I hope I'm going to get this right. You're, you're always testing me on my Waldorf teacher training. I think there, I, I have a feeling that there's a, a twofold reason. And one is something to do with how children naturally have that sing-song pitch. So they, if you listen to a little, a very young child kind of sing song playing to themselves, if they're sitting with some toys in a corner, you'll actually hear that they are singing in, um, yeah, in that, in that tone. And then I think that there's also a second reason, and it has something to do with the heavens and the angels. (laughs) 
<laughs> but I usually kind of zone out a little bit when it gets to that stuff because it gets really esoteric and deep pretty quickly. Um, so I don't think I can explain much further than that. My experience with it in general is that children do resonate with it. I do think that they naturally sing and play in those tones, but, or maybe, and also, I think there's so much more room for other tones and types of music and singing um, lots of other different tunes and melodies, not just always sticking to the fifth with young children. And that has been what I've done with my children. And I feel pretty strongly about it because uh, music is so, it's, it's a really important part of my identity and my upbringing in my life. And I wanted to share that with my children in all of its diverse forms from the very beginning. And so I didn't want to be purist at all about uh, singing in the mood of the fifth. Yes. And now I want to turn to ask you about this, Ashley. So to expand on what you just mentioned, Megan, I also have felt there's more I want to draw on for music and for songs for my young child. And I've also at the same time noticed that a lot of rhythms and songs that I also heard when I was younger are pulled from things that I didn't know they were pulled from or have underlying tones that I didn't know were there when I was younger. So I'm wondering, Ashley, if you can talk uh, about songs that you like or cultivate because it's your kind of little area of specialty, of course, and then also how we can think more deeply about the roots of songs that maybe we grew up with that are, again, coming back to this kind of not appropriate or don't have the roots that maybe we we thought they did. I think a lot of us just really don't give any thought to the rhythms or little tunes, you know, that we heard when we were younger. And yeah, I don't know if you, if there's in that area, what, what you'd like to kind of add? Oh, yeah. You know, uh, we've played with, you know, sticking to the mood of the fifth, right? Uh, <laughs> with, uh, like, the Good Morning song. Even we tr- it was translated into Arabic by I'm a parent facilitator uh, when I did some field work. And the children kind of liked it. <laughs> But just to be, I mean, to be quite honest, like they, they felt more at home with different rhythms because those are the rhythm, rhythms that they hear, you know, that are normal to them. And in every child, and there's nothing wrong, like, like I'll say, like Megan says, you know, I'm not a purist. There's nothing, I'm not going to say that there's anything wrong with, with it because you, it's true. If you listen to a child, you may hear them, uh, you know, like you hear them in, in sort of in that tone, like when they're playing, sometimes when they're talking and they're singing songy way, their soft voices, you can pick up on that. But also you have to recognize that there are traditional folk songs of various cultures that, that just move along a different wavelength. And I've witnessed before, like, for instance, with uh, the song Little Sally Walker, <laughs> knowing exactly how my mom taught it to me, how she sings it to my children, and then to go into a classroom once and to hear it sung, like, it almost, like, hurt my ears. Like, I just to be honest, <laughs> I was like, li- literally, what is happening here? Like, honestly, just to be quite honest. And this is not the first time that I've, I've come into that when I, I was doing some field work at a home-based uh, Waldorf preschool for a year. And... 
and I was, you know, I was observing, so I didn't say anything. Uh, I just, I, you know, I was observing the circle time, uh, the song time, and there were several songs, several songs <laughs> where I would literally, I was once told, I don't, I don't know if I ever mentioned this to you, Ashley, or someone, I feel like I've had this conversation before, but a little girl turned to me and told me, you're singing that wrong. And I said, this is where it begins. You see? Because there is no wrong, there is no wrong or right way to sing a song. It's just, you, you know, it's many songs may be rooted in uh, European tradition, but have a new life, make a new life when you, when you have, uh, for example, black folks in the South of uh, uh, formerly enslaved population, they had a lot of those songs that they remastered, right? So there's songs that were that we that we can we know reach back to European roots, but just look completely different in context, and that's the beauty about like culture, right? And so, for a child to turn around and say, "The way you're singing that is wrong," is something that I think is such an example of how we need to be open, right, in our dealings with children and families to the different ways that any song can be sung. And if there's a child that says, my mom doesn't sing that song like that, we open the floor for a different way instead of being stuck in that way, right? In that manual, in that, in that this is the way it's always been done. Therefore, this is the truth, right? We sometimes have to turn things over on their head in order to, to learn something new about each other. And, and I think that's the part that a lot of a lot of people that are dealing with families and, and young children are learning, but especially we see this this uh, awakening right in Waldorf circles that is happening. This teaches us about like the witnessing and the and the listening and the opening the door and the engaging with uh, with the families we serve. So I think when I when when I deal with families, see I'm not because of my training as a social scientist, I'm not attached to doing it any way that say a book on pedagogy or my pedagogical training would say, you know, like, like you may have, like you may have some practitioners out there that are like, okay, this is the way it's done. Right. We're talking about that right now. Like the being stuck, the, the stuck with, this is how it has to be done and not being able to, to, to shift and, and meet the moment. I'm always approaching my work with family and children first as myself then as a social scientist where I have my own ethics and values around serving communities and centering their values and their needs over my own. And then I say, oh, this is an interesting thing that I think can really serve us. Let's plug in Waldorf as that thing. How can we reimagine this to serve this, to serve this uh, community, this family, or my own family? And I think songs are really the work because the mood of the fifth is not is not culturally relevant relevant for everyone. It's not culturally sustaining at all for many folks of the global majority. So um, I think we, we we can't be married to it. Can can we can we envision other ways that singing songs could look? Is there space for that? And if not, why not? Right. Those are the questions we have to ask ourselves. Yeah, I've heard I've heard the mood of the fifth being referred to as like the mood of the soul. And that's my question. It's like, what is the mood of the soul? Because everyone is so uh, unique and different and come from different backgrounds. And so our songs would be just as diverse and unique. Yes. Yes. To all of this. And I 
I feel like these are all things that we could really just kind of keep talking about for more, many more minutes than we have time to do in this kind of segment. But I hope that these kind of questions that we're bringing up are going to be or it's sparking listeners, parents, carers, teachers, grandparents to kind of continue these thoughts and, and maybe conversations with your community, uh, with your teachers or other, you know, fellow parents and carers. This conversation is leading me into my next question, which is how we can be more culturally conscious in our story creation and in the way that we present songs. And I think in my last question for you, Ashley, that's kind of where I was going, but I wasn't clear enough. So um, I'm glad that everything that you said was very important that you added there. But coming back to, I guess, what you are offering is not being attached to uh, the way a story or a song like originally was. I'm trying to find footing is exploring how to give credit where credit is due in a lot of uh, my own kind of exploring stories and songs that weren't brought to me when I was three, four or five. So I don't know if you want to start by, uh, if you want to start and then we can kind of get Megan to chime in too on how we can do, just be culturally conscious when we're creating songs and stories. You know, well, I think the first step is to, uh, is to really center. First, I'd, I'd ask, like, are you talking about in the home? Or are you talking about, because there's, different answers right okay yeah well specifically I was I was thinking about in the home but I think Mm -hmm. uh if you could maybe go down a little bit of each road perhaps uh, your thoughts on in the home and then you know what it means in the classroom setting too okay so you know for in the home a lot of the research is going to be on you to uh find the resources on the songs written by folks that come from the tradition you're looking to to bring into the fold of your your song binder or your your song list right lots of great places to start are like spotify for example like they have literally lists of like stories and folk tales in each tradition and it and they're like retold by uh for example there's like a african folk folk tales playlist and it's like the stories are being told by folks of african descent from the continent I have like a morning song playlist and I've got like a few folks on there that are, you know, singing the songs from their tradition. So it, it takes work, right? But everything takes work. So that's, that's part of the problem with a lot of people is they just want to download it in ebook form. <laughs> but no, it's, it's going to take you work. You're going to have to work on it. If you don't have the people around you to ask the right questions, you need to either work on expanding your circle or you've got to get, get your, get your knees and your elbows dirty and, and find the find the resources and they're easy to find. I mean, I have an entire collection. If I was home, I would read off some of them. Uh, but you know, I've got a lot of work by um Linda Goss and uh Bessie Jones. Uh, you know, of course Zora Neale Hurston has some amazing work that can lead you on your way, right? When it comes to like, you know, black and African tradition and folk tales and songs. So that's my recommendation for someone in the home with their children, really. You know what I love to do while telling stories to my little one? Using little props, little people, animals, gnomies, fairies, silks, and playscapes. I love it all, but I can't really go about buying every character in every color, every type of animal or tree, or all the toys to create every landscape and scene to tell my stories with. So what do I do? 
I make them thanks to my subscription with Toy Making Magic. Jessica, the founder of Toy Making Magic, was inspired to create her video toy making tutorials to make Waldorf toys feel more accessible to families on a tight budget. Yes, now you can make your own beautiful Waldorf toys. Each month, Jessica creates a new Waldorf-inspired toy-making video tutorial. Her monthly subscription is super affordable and packed with value. You'll find tutorials for needle felting, wet felting, sewing, knitting, crochet, whittling, and more. All sorts of handmade magic. What have I enjoyed making most? felt in mushroom houses, crochet crowns, play silks, and the playscapes, just to name a few. It's like Netflix for Waldorf toy making tutorials. Now try and tell me that you couldn't make use of that. I love how Jessica takes pride in her tutorials being detailed and lengthy so that even beginners can craft along with confidence. Plus her husband is a super talented professional photographer and videographer as well. So the quality is really enjoyable. Now you can get 50% off your first month of Toy Making Magic by using the coupon code WALDORF at checkout. To check out Toy Making Magic, just visit their website, which is mamatellmeastory.com. That's mamatellmeastory.com. Sorry, and I just want to get a little more specific on that work. And I know uh, listeners may kind of be wondering the same thing is that beyond even just finding the folktales and finding the accurate, like making sure that they're culturally accurate and you're kind of really mm-hmm. learning about them. Mm-hmm. At also bringing where they came from, whose stories they are mm-hmm. in, I guess, I'm going to say, quote, like the traditional Waldorf approach. So much is kind of like just brought to the children. But like, how do you see that as being communicated to? Like, do you do you just bring that story kind of with all the other stories of, that are different? Or, oh, or, no. Or so your approach to, okay, so yeah, like, let's talk yeah. about where these, so where are the say, people that these, like, let's talk uh-huh. about the people that this story came from. Like, that's also uh-huh. important. And how do you kind of relate that to the different kind of age groups under seven? So, I mean, so that's what I'm, that's what I'm saying, like, where, like, the, you know, there's a lot of work on the parent to, to do the background research. So if you, like, the books that I have, and I can share those titles with you, like, they have a lot of the backstory, right? the story behind the story, where this came from. If I, if I talk about my, be- my, one of my Bessie, uh, Bessie Jones books, uh, she gives the background on each and every song that she has in there, right? Where it came from, uh, where she was in time and place. Typically these books that are rooted in like folk songs and, uh, children's folklore will, will, always, will, that will always be embedded in there. That's why it's important, you know, to, to seek out, you have to seek out the story behind it to know it, right? And then it's just like a rabbit hole from that point on. So you don't want to just give it to the children, just like hand it to them on a platter, right? Because it has meaning and it has history and it has place and time in it. And so, I mean, that's really all I could say on that. It really is just like you have, you just have to do the research and you, and you can tell the story with the song. So you could tell you know, the background, the background of what, say, Bessie Jones may say for like shoe turkey, for example, just to give a, you know, an example where I've some of some of the work I've done that people may be uh, familiar with. Shoe turkey has a backstory for her from her childhood that in itself could be turned into a story and you could prime the children with that before you introduce the story. And so it gives it, it and it's and it's best done. It's not something you want to do in Black History Month. It's something you want to do because you are you're building a bridge. So this this child, Bessie Jones as a child, with her grandparent, 
or here, wherever she is, on the land, doing the work, this song came out of that. So she tells that story with, within her book, the story behind Shoe Turkey. It's, that, it's really that simple because, excuse me, that's how stories were introduced to me as a child, right? You know, oh, when I was a little girl, this is the song we sang when we did this, right? Or, for example, when I was working with um, a group of Syrian mothers and kids, uh, uh, little ones, actually, not kids, uh, you know, we sat in the, in the circle and I said, were there any songs that you sang as a child back home, back home being Syria, uh, for uh, the rhythms of the house around cooking? And so you begin that conversation. I'm not Syrian, so I am an outsider. And I'm like requesting, you know, this, this moment of vulnerability and of sharing a part of you, please, I just want to know. I'm being humble instead of saying, what's the song you sang, you know, and just like taking it and taking it from them and, and ripping it up of its context. You always want to have the story behind the song and the moments behind the song. Um, and so that, and, that, and when I say that there's a lot of work involved in that, that's kind of what I mean. When you're, when you are a white person <laughs> wanting to introduce white children to stories and songs from folks from the global majority, it doesn't, it, there's no other way to say it besides it's going to take some work, you know, uh, it, it takes groundwork. <laughs> it, right. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you can expand on that now for the classroom setting and, and you uh-huh. mentioned there being a difference there. Yeah. So for the classroom setting, ideally you may have like, so you're not alone anymore. So hopefully you have a classroom that doesn't just look like you. And then you can uh, reach out to the families. You can reach out to the families you have in your school, ask them some questions. Actually, Megan, don't you have like a, you have a handout that kind of like maps this out, which I thought was great. Not a handout, I'm sorry, a paper. And you and you map out for schools, like a sample letter. Yeah, yeah. I, you, know what I, you know what I'm talking about? Right, you know exactly right. what you're talking about. I, I yeah, so I thought, yeah, I thought um, that that would be, a great way for teachers to branch out and ask the parents in their community for about their, the traditions that they celebrate about the stories that they tell the songs that they sing and just ask parents um, what they're willing to share and, and get to know them in that way. So that if there's, you know, even just a really simple symbol that can go on the nature table at a certain point of year or um, you know, a song for bread baking that works really well into the rhythm. Them. You know, there's so many organic opportunities to bring the, the diverse classroom culture in, but it, it requires a huge amount of um, collaboration. And, and I, loved what, I loved what Ashley said about just being in like that right relationship and, and doing that hard work, because I have a story about uh, I, I did the whole family rhythms harvest guide, I don't know, maybe three or four years ago, and I wanted it to be inclusive and uh, a lot of the symbols around in autumn time now are actually for example like corn and pumpkins and squash those are all um, fruits that are native to North America and so I knew that the indigenous peoples here were the first people to have stories about those vegetables and fruits and so I I found a story about the three sisters corn beans and squash um, and I included it in the guide and, um, and, and gave credit to, you know, the original, I think it was the Iroquois people and where I found this story. But in the end, it's still 
didn't resonate with me in the sense that I didn't feel that I was in right relationship enough, enough to, to put that story in my guide and sell that as something um, when I, I hadn't done all that work to be in right relationship and to, to really feel authentically connected to that story and, and able to share it in that way. And so it, yeah, it really resonates with me when you say, you know, you really have to do that, that hard work. And, and we as white settlers really need to ask ourselves how we use stories and when we use them and, and where we're getting them. And, uh, you know, the, the question that I'm just always asking is like, is this appropriation or is it appreciation? And wh- what's the difference? Mm-hmm. And I think it's in that right relationship. Yeah, I agree. That's so important. I remember you talking about that with, with, the, with the Harvest Guides. Uh, it's it's a, it's such humbling work, right, Megan? Like you know, you you're trying your best. You you want to make sure that every family sees themselves, but you don't want to do harm. And when harm is done, what do you do, right? You fix it immediately. And sometimes, unfortunately, that means that you're like, hey, I'm not going to sell this guide anymore, or you know, or we're just going to go back to the drawing board because we got to get this right. And you know, and I. Even I've you know I've experienced situations where I've had to I've had to address harm done, you know, it it happens everywhere. And I think that's one of the key parts of this work is being humble in it. One thing that I will add to that is if at all you can, you should invite that family, make sure that you're not saying, what do you want to, what, what stories or what songs are important to you? Oh, let me know what it is so I can teach the children. Start first by saying, can you come here and talk to us about it? Can you teach us? Right. Yeah, can you demonstrate to us? Can you tell your story? We want to witness you. But I think like sometimes we want to we want to uh, take it and run, but you can't take it and run because uh, the, these babies, they just need to know that this, that their world are, their world is full of teachers. Right. And there's no one holder of the knowledge. Mm-hmm. So you, your teacher, your early childhood teacher can invite a grandparent in or a parent in and they, too, can teach you something that you are meant to learn on this day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, and I I want to wrap up here with just any final thoughts that each of you have on stories and story creation, and also if you have any tips for creating stories for parents. Well, David Sewell McCann, who is one of the co-founders of Sparkle Stories, I interviewed him a couple years ago, and he said something along the lines of just get out of your own way. (laughs) And that was great advice for me. I'm so in my head all the time. And so just coming up with a story on on a whim is uh, tricky for me. And so I, I started taking his advice at that time. And I just would sit down with my girls at bedtime. They were all tucked in and I just start talking and I really tried to get out of my own way. And, you know, no matter whether the story was awful or great that night, my kids loved it just the same. Uh, And it was um, a really creative, fun, joyful exercise for me too, as the adult, it wasn't just for them. Now I think I've dropped the, that <laughs> habit a lot. I've left it to my husband who is an amazing storyteller and I love listening to his stories for the girls. But when I did do it for that while, I loved it. And so that's kind of what I would say to any parents who are wanting to um, 
experiment and play with telling their children's stories is uh, get out of your own way, look back to your own childhood and the stories that you loved, and look back to your your heritage and your ancestors and, and those stories as well. Oh, yeah, I agree totally. Like I remember uh, my oldest, who's eight, almost nine now, uh, at bedtime, he would ask me the same question every night mommy, tell me a funny story from when you were a little girl. And some of the funny stories that I had was like uh, times that I spent with like my paternal grandfather because uh, I spent a lot of time with with them and at my grandparents' house. And that set off a whole series of stories and stories upon stories and then the truths and then kind of like, you know, uh, cushioning the truth thing that needed to be told in the moment. Just getting out of my own way, as Megan, you know, was quoting uh, David Sewell McCann, you know, you have to get out of your own way. Another thing that I've been doing is reading the, what's the book called? A New Day, right? And there's no words in it, right? I We have been, uh, my youngest and I have just been making up stories based on those pictures. And it's amazing how he's even exercising his own storytelling muscle. And, and I myself too, every night what's going on in that book changes and shifts. And sometimes it looks similar to what we're going through. So maybe using pictures to help you tell the story, like the the books without words or having a picture in your hand or a painting in your hand to reference, you know, creating, just really getting out of your own way and creating the stories and, and finding the tiny moments of magic uh, to let those stories emerge you have to be open uh, and, and listening for them. And I think from then it just, you just get better and better, better and better at it. <laughs> I had uh, my sister, one of my sisters, her grades teacher. And when she went through Waldorf school, grades one through eight told me once when my son was like one, she just said, just tell him anything. If it's you telling it, he's going to love it. And I just, that really stuck with me that part of it is, the experience of feeling the love of someone just creating a story just for you. And that if you let go a little bit and relax a little bit around like how good it is or what you think you're trying to tell a child, it's, it, you can enjoy yourself more. And I have found so far that she was so accurate. My son just mostly loves everything that I kind of come up with. And when, and then now he has started to chime in, but wait, maybe they go that, you know, how he wants the story to go some of the time. So that's kind of been exciting too. And I think for me, something that I've discovered really more in the last year to year and a half also is just not to be afraid to cross bridges, not to be afraid to jump in to learning about stories that I don't know anything about. Um, and really just, having more courage to do the work that we've talked about doing in this conversation and that it is doable, you know, and you will learn and ch the children learn and everybody wins. Everybody benefits at the end of the day. So thank you both so much for holding space for this conversation, creating the time and you both of you are busy lives. And yeah, I, I just can't thank both of you enough for, for being here with me now. Thank you for having us. Thank you. This has been such a sweet conversation. 
Thank you all so much for listening in. As a reminder, and I mentioned it earlier, you can get 50% off your first month of Toy Making Magic by using the coupon code WALLERFEE at checkout. And again, the site for Toy Making Magic is mamatellmeastory.com. Know that the show notes and resource page for this episode can be found at wallerfee.com forward slash stories and songs. Big thanks to Walderfee podcast partners, Palumba and Sparkle Stories for helping me to bring this content to you. You can shop Palumba's selection of Waldorf toys, books, and art supplies at palumba.com. And please be sure to visit sparklestories.com forward slash sign up to check out Sparkle Stories. And don't forget to use the coupon code Walderfee there so you can get access to an extended 30-day free trial of their incredible selection of original audio stories crafted to entertain and enrich your child's developing mind. A super special thanks to our generous Walderfee Patreon supporters. You can check out patreon.com forward slash Walderfee to learn more about becoming a supporter. Another great way to support the show is by writing a review. The best place to do this is Apple Podcasts, although technically you can write reviews on most podcast listening platforms. You can also subscribe to the show. That's the best compliment that you'd like to listen to each and every episode. You can also support by following along on social media. You can find Walderfee at bwalderfee, that's B-E Walderfee on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Big thanks again to all of you listening. Be well.